Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you would take your Bible and open to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. We're going to be in this great chapter that Isaiah has given to us, packed with meaning, packed with foresight and prophecy of Christ Jesus as the suffering servant. If you would stand with me one more time as I read from the word of God this morning. We'll begin in chapter 52, verse 13, and we will make our way to the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with him, excuse me, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And as this day and every day, Father, belong to you, glory and honor and praise forever and ever. You sent your son Jesus to take our place, to pick up our tab. And you have provided this moment on this day where by grace through faith, we too can be saved. Lord, we look to you this morning to teach us what we do not know, for we trust you and your word, not our own understanding. Father, we look to you for provision for our daily bread, for you are our provider. And we turn our eyes to you, for we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as we are called to grow in Christ's likeness. For you are the potter, and we are the clay. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Before we get to Isaiah 53, I would like for you to turn quickly in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. There is a moment here, just a word from Paul to the churches of Galatia that I think are important in light of what we've read out of Isaiah 53 and helping us to understand how this all connects together. In Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul is writing his introduction to the church, to his letter, and he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Out of that, we are looking this morning at the glorious suffering servant. The glory of the suffering servant. In that short phrase in Galatians 1 that I just read to you, out of verse 4, there is a phrase that caught my eye as I was reading and studying through Isaiah 53 this week. And it's that little phrase at the beginning of verse 4 that says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Another translation says that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What Paul said is that in Jesus, when we were in certain danger, well, why were we in danger? Why were people in Paul's day in danger? Why were the Israelites and the Jews that Isaiah was writing that for, like, why were they in danger? And it's that fun little three-letter word, sin. Sin had caused a separation between God and man to where man was at an enemy of God if he was not in Christ. So Paul is writing on that side of Christ Jesus, looking back to say this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, gave himself for our sins. When we were in danger due to the consequences of our sin, Jesus gave himself to rescue, to deliver us from danger. And he did so because it was according to the will of God the Father. So with that in mind, we go back to Isaiah 53, where this giving of himself, this substitute 
that Jesus would become, we find it prophesied in perhaps no greater moment captured in one chapter than Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 has a, a tremendous honor in the New Testament. The, the authors, Peter, Paul, James, the others, held Isaiah chapter 53 in great esteem and high honor because it portrayed the, the suffering servant, the one who would come to give his life as a ransom for many. And it presented him as a glorious suffering servant who would die for the sins of his people to save them from the consequences of that sin, which is death. And that he would be exalted in our hearts. And, in, and more importantly than just in our heart as a concept, but lived out in our life. So I want to take you to Isaiah 53, 52 and 53, just for a moment this morning, just to, to look at this suffering servant. If you go back to chapter 52, why do we go back there? Because, you know, well, the chapters, these numbers are there, right? Some guy some days ago put those numbers in there to help us kind of break it down. It's not necessarily, well, it's not that way. When Isaiah wrote this, he didn't write, okay, now this is chapter 3, 53, and that's 52. But really in the text, they go together. The end of 52 and end of 53 go together, right? So it's, it should be, most, most of the English translations print it that way, all right? So we go back to verse 13 of chapter 52, and we just notice that first word there in verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. That word, behold calls us this morning to consider the servant. Behold the servant. Look at the servant. That word behold, it calls our attention to what follows immediately after it. Well, here we see, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, back in the late 90s, there was a series of commercials that came out by the American Dairy Farmers Association. And it, every commercial ended the same way. It said, behold, the power of Cheese. One of my favorite commercials was the one, it just started with a picture of the moon, and it, no, no voices, it just, it came on and it read this, for centuries man believed the moon was made of cheese. Years ago man landed on the moon and learned it was made of rock. We haven't been back since. Behold the power of cheese. Goofy commercials, right? You get the point, behold. Consider what comes next, right? We're expecting great things and cheese. Well, kind of a letdown. But you won't be let down with Isaiah 53. Behold the servant. Behold the one who is to come. See my servant. Look at the servant. He is exalted. He is going to act wisely. He's exalted. He's going to be high and lifted up, no doubt. He's going to be high and lifted up at the cross. But even in his death, he's going to be come, coming back. He shall be exalted high and lifted up. This servant song is, of course, about Jesus Christ. There's no other that this could possibly be pointing to. No one could fill the role like Jesus did and complete every task that was mentioned in this, in this prophecy of who the suffering servant would be. We know that on this side of the events, and we can look back and say, yes, absolutely, this is pointing to Jesus. But even, again, the early church, Peter, Paul, and those who would write the New Testament knew that this was speaking about Jesus how do we know that? In Acts chapter 8, Philip, the evangelist, Philip is out and he's going and there along the road, he comes across a man that is known as the Ethiopian eunuch. He's an official in the Ethiopian government. And he is actually reading from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And as he's reading, he doesn't know who it's talking about. 
And so Philip hears him. He asks Philip, who is this talking about? Can you explain this? And Philip then, from Isaiah 53, shares the gospel and fills in all the blanks as to who this chapter is talking about. And he's pointing that man to Jesus. Soon after that, after he gives his trust to Christ as Lord and Savior, he says, well, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip baptizes him right there on the spot. That's how we know Isaiah 53 is such an important thing. So look to the servant. Behold the servant. The passage begins at the end, really. This is what he will be. He will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. He will be the shining light of his glory because of his willing obedience to the will of his Father. Verse 14 tells kind of a different side of the story as as verse 13 kind of builds the picture, this great servant that is coming. We might expect him to be some kind of royal king, some kind of majestic appearance, but then verse 14 kind of changes the story, if you will. It kind, of, it kind of gives us a different side of the story, a different picture. And this is all a part of it. It's striking that when you behold the servant in verse 14, he says, many of you were astonished. As many as were astonished at you. Your, your translation might use the word appalled. Just maybe a little bit stronger word. Not because of his royal appearance, not because he was handsome and taller and stronger and bigger and faster than everybody else. That's not who he would be, this servant. Verse 14 calls our attention to look at how marred in his appearance he was. After he was beaten before the cross, and as he's on the cross, this is looking at that moment, beaten, marred beyond human semblance, beyond human appearance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. They whooped him hard. They beat him to a pulp. And yet we're supposed to look at that. We, need, we, we want sometimes to come to church and be lifted up and find happy things, right? But friends, you, you got to look at the servant. That's where joy is found. That's where fulfillment is found. That's where relationship with God is found. That's where everything is restored when we look to the servant. And as a result of looking at that as he's on the cross, we're called to see that There he is. We behold him. It's not normal. It wasn't a normal thing. This this king would be a servant. This king would be the king who had been down and cleaned the feet of his own disciples, which was, again, totally backwards. Verse 15, we see the outcome of that suffering from 14. We get into 15, and it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. Why? Because... Holding the servant, the king of kings. The nations will be cleansed. Well, we can look forward to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, where they're looking in heaven. Who can read from the scroll? Who is worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And no one there but Jesus Christ himself. And so they sing a song, a new song in verse 9. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The nations will be cleansed because of what the suffering servant is going to do. And then Isaiah begins in verse 1 or continues this thought, and he asks a very important question that I don't want you to miss this morning. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? Because it isn't a normal story. It's a question for you to answer. Have you believed in this suffering servant? The arm of the Lord has come. It's active. To whom has it been revealed? Verse 2, they go on. Let's check our expectations. He says, because he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Meaning he's coming from the least, the unexpected. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We've been through some of the, the Old Testament thus far and we know Saul was head and shoulders above the others. He was tall, he was big, he looked strong. Yet his heart was not where it needed to be with the Lord. We know of David. David was a mighty man of God. He was a valiant warrior. He called out Goliath and prayed to the Lord, and God delivered him from that moment. We know scriptures say that he was ruddy and maybe just a little bit different than everyone else, but he was a pretty good-looking dude. We know Solomon was wise and had all of his wives and built and expanded the kingdom to massive amounts of wealth. And yet here is this king who had no form, no majesty, that we should look at him. There was nothing about him that would draw our eyes to him. No beauty that we should desire him. He looked like any other man. A humble birth in the manger, in the, in the, in, in the, uh, in the feeding trough of an animal. This is, this is the part of his life that messed up the Jews so much. This is what messed with them. They were not expecting this kind of man to come, this kind of king. No grand stallions to ride in when he entered Jerusalem for the final time. He rode in on the colt of a donkey. I mean, it's just not normal. And yet we're called to behold him. He's despised and rejected even by his own people. They would, wanted nothing to do with him. In John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. Despise means, uh, means underestimated. They, they did not esteem him. They underestimated who he was. Other translations will use the word despicable or revolting. That's how the Pharisees viewed him. They rejected him, not over minor differences, but friends, they rejected him over some major issues. And what you don't expect of this servant is that he's going to suffer at the hands of his own people. So we behold the servant. We, we look and carry on into verse 4 and we see how the, ser the servant is going to suffer. Notice with me as we start 4, 5, and 6 how many contrasts or exchanges there are between the he, that is the, ser the servant, and we, the people. Right? The he and the we. There you go. Notice what he did. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ alone, the iniquity of us all. Think about that exchange that has happened. He endured our griefs. 
He's carried our sorrows. Day after day, Jesus was ministering to those who were hurting around him, those who were hungry, those who were sick, healing them one by one, teaching them, sometimes in a large crowd, sometimes in a small gathering in someone's home, teaching the religious and the irreligious alike, feeding, dining with sinners, getting them to repentance. He sat on the hillside and looked, uh, overlooked Jerusalem, felt compassion on his people because they were like sheep without a shepherd, praying for them. And yet, as he was doing that, they are the ones that are going to yell out, crucify him. And there, in that moment, he is pierced and crushed for our sin. Think about those words, pierced and crushed. Man, I step on a Lego at home, and I'm crying foul like a big old baby. But this man was pierced and crushed for our sin. And through that discipline, we have peace with God. And then he says, by his wounds, with his wounds, through his wounds, we are healed. This relates to the central mission of who Jesus was and why he came. He did not come to heal temporary or to, to, to do temporary healings for people who would later die. That's not why he came. Did he work miracles? Absolutely. They were a part of getting that message out of who he was to display the power of God. But that's not the only reason he came. I've heard it said before, even at the deathbed of a friend that guarantees people, if you just have faith, then you're guaranteed physical healing. In this present age, if you'll just have faith to believe it, come on, by his wounds we are healed. And the next day, the brother or sister dies. That's not what that verse means. It's about the central mission of Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for the sins of his people. By those wounds, your heart, your soul, your spirit, your life is healed before God. Because in your sin, you are broken, you are damaged, and you are hurting. But Christ giving his life as a substitute for your sin, winning eternal life in a future world where those things, those diseases, and that death will be abolished forever. By those wounds, we are healed. Now, the people looked at him didn't understand why he came, didn't understand his death. They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, because the religious leaders had said, this man's a blasphemer, he's claiming to be God. He said, I and the Father are one, all these things. But what they didn't realize is exactly what Isaiah points us to right here. He died because of them, and he died because of us. Think about it for a moment. If I could give you a pen and paper... And you could start writing out the number of times you've told a lie. The number of times you thought you knew the truth and you continued to tell others that truth when it was not in fact true. That's called gossip. The times when you cheated on a test growing up. Men, every time your eyes have wandered and lusted after a, a woman, Scripture says that's a sin even in our heart. No physical touching required. Just lusting in our heart. Jesus said, that's adultery. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Every time you called somebody a fool, I mean, if we were to write down every single one of our sins, we would run out of ink and we would run out of paper. 
everything that we could possibly write down and all the stuff that we forget crushed that servant at the cross. That sin is the reason he was pierced. He did that for you. I wonder, does that, does that move you at all? I want, like, maybe, does it rev up your engine at all? Like, for me, that gets me fired up a little bit. It breaks my heart. As plain as I can say it, my friends, if you don't, if we don't have this part, our sins and his suffering, if we don't have this transaction that is taking place where he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, where uh, uh, we have gone astray, we have turned our own way, if we don't have the last part of verse 6 where the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all, if we don't have that moment, that transfer of guilt, then we've got no salvation. we got no hope of it. Notice our condition, that we are deep in rebellion and transgression, iniquity, deserving death, at war with God, needing deep healing in the heart of man. All of that is transferred to Christ at the cross. And then by grace, through faith, God grants that to us as we trust in Jesus for salvation and lordship. His punishment has brought us peace with God. Romans chapter five, verse one, Paul wrote, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That happens in Isaiah 53. That's why what Paul said to the Romans in chapter five, verse one is true. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he suffered in the cross. The mortal wounding of Christ on the cross, the death of Jesus heals us perfectly, eternally from all the damage that sin has done or ever could do, period. There is nothing but the blood of there's nothing that the blood of Jesus does not cleanse. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One more stop in verse six again. It says, we, we've all strayed like sheep. We've all gone. By the way, that's not an accidental turning away. That is a legit, deliberate turning away. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Nobody has walked the road that Christ has walked. He alone. And he died so that he could bring us back to that road. God didn't say some of it when he said he's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not part of it, not a third of it, but all of it. Every single one of our sins he has laid upon Christ Jesus. Don't get stuck thinking that your sin isn't that bad and God's grace isn't that great. Friend, your sin is that bad, so is mine. Our sin is that bad, and yes, his grace is that great. Don't you forget it. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Verses 7, 8, and 9, the servant was willing to be slaughtered. Another glorious point here out of this passage is that the servant willingly gave himself to this punishment. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he, not opened, he did not open his mouth. Jesus was not a helpless victim. Okay? He willingly went. He could have opened his mouth. He could have stopped it. I firmly believe that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying, right? He asked God if, if there's any possible way that this cup could be removed from me. But not my will, thy will. He submitted himself to the will of his father. Perfect 
in his obedience and he was willing to go. He willingly gave himself to this punishment. That makes him not a helpless victim. The consequences that he endured and suffered were not his fault. He wasn't guilty. It was our sin. It was our guilt. Beaten to a pulp, spit upon, slapped, mocked, all the way to the cross with a crown of thorns on his head, stripped down, nailed down to the cross, lifted up in agony, struggling to breathe, crucified. Yet this is what he endured. And not once did he open his mouth and fight back. He took that punishment willingly. He hung as if he was guilty, but he wasn't. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, they considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. That's the death of Christ at the cross. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. We know that to be who? Remember? That's your homework this week. Verse 10. Let's keep going. Verse 10. God has put forward Christ as the payment of our sin. He's picked up our tab at the cross to be received by faith. He has made a way for you willingly. We despised, rejected, underestimated him, cast him out all the while, knew the risk. He knew the pain. He knew the suffering, and he knew the wrath of God that he was going to endure. And yet he's made a way. And in making the way and suffering as he did, the servant has secured victory. That's the good news. The servant has secured victory. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Oh, that's a tough line. You mean it was the will of God to crush him? Don't you remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? The snake crusher? He's going to rise up and crush the head of that old serpent. This was part of God's plan. And this, the servant, Jesus, willingly goes. It makes his life as an offering for guilt. But when that happens, he secures victory. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand. Essentially, God is exalting the servant who died for others. What was on Jesus' mind when he was at the cross? We, could, we might think that it was awful and that he was... Scared, perhaps, or timid, but Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us. Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That joy, glorifying the Father, bringing forth the church and those who would believe. For the joy who was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because the servant has interceded on our behalf, by faith you can be saved. Or you are saved if you've already trusted Jesus. Friends, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Christ, Jesus, the glorious suffering servant. Not only is now, now is he reigning in glorious victory over death, but look what else he's doing at the end of chapter, uh, verse 12. He makes intercession for the sinners. He made intercession at the cross. And in his resurrection at the right hand of God, he's still making intercession for us. Why? Because we don't know how to pray. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. 
But he is there making intercession for us. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How do we make it day by day in the church, following hard after Jesus and becoming more Christ-like? Because Jesus is interceding for us. Three questions for you to consider in our time of close, and we're going to go to First Peter and look at uh, how Peter looked at uh, and viewed the, this important chapter of, of Isaiah 53. He uses it quite often in this short little letter, First uh, Peter chapter two. But the first question I want you to consider is this: Am I convinced of the extent of God's love for me, as expressed in the astonishing sacrifice of Jesus? Who has believed what He has heard from us? Am I convinced of the extent of God's love for me as expressed in the astonishing sacrifice of Jesus? Augustine, one of the early church fathers, had a comment about this very passage, and this is what he said. I found it worthy, so I share it with you. Christ's deformity is what gives form to you. Christ's deformity is what gives form to you. He was beaten, marred beyond human recognition. Augustine goes on to say, if he had been unwilling to be deformed, you would never have gotten back the form you lost. So he hung on the cross deformed, but his deformity was our beauty. Are you convinced of the extent of God's love for you as expressed in this astonishing sacrifice of Jesus, the suffering servant? Peter would write to the church about Jesus In verse 22 of chapter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Boy, church, if we would live by that standard, if we would grow in Christ-likeness to not return fire with fire, Just listen. He goes on to say, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Are you convinced of the extent of God's love for you as expressed in that astonishing sacrifice of Jesus? Second question is this. Am I prepared to take God at his word, trusting that as I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that I will discover forgiveness, peace, joy, and life? Am I prepared to take God at his word when it says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree? Is that enough? Is that enough? Or are you still trying to do good and hoping that God will let you in when you get there? Because if you're still trying to do good, plus the fact that, well, I walked the aisle, signed the card, and got baptized, plus I'm going to keep doing good so he'll let me in, you got it wrong. He himself bore your sin, and that's what was required. That's what was paid. And by grace, through faith, you got to be prepared to take God at his word, trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and that in doing so, you will discover forgiveness peace, joy, and life. It is this amazing grace that transforms the believer from the inside out. 
Will you take God at his word? The last question is this. Am I prepared to let go of my pride and look only to the cross? Am I prepared to let go of my pride and look only to the cross? Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There is no one else upon which you may believe or trust and find that kind of life change that he offers. You won't find it. You won't find it. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter was preaching. He says, therefore, uh, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let go of your pride. Look to the cross where the glorious suffering servant was, but is not now. And what does that mean for me afterward? I've trusted Christ. What does that look like? Well, we still battle with pride and we still have to keep looking at the cross that Paul calls us to seek the things that are above in Colossians chapter 3. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Keep looking to the cross. Where the glorious suffering servant died and gave his life when we like sheep had gone astray. Where God laid the iniquity, the sin, the punishment for all of us on our substitute. And then we look to the day of resurrection where Christ overcame death and sealed our victory forever.